0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part four of four, misdiagnosis and abdominal CT strategies and pitfalls. And what we're going to look at in this part is pancreatic mass detection. And I think one of the areas we know we have problems is in pancreatic masses. There are many different problems we have. One, we find a mass and we're trying to determine what it is. Is it pancreatic or is it peripancreatic? I've showed you very nice examples of tumors such as gist tumors in the duodenum simulating pancreatic cancer. I've shown you very nice examples of carcinoid tumors looking like neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas. I've showed you duodenal diverticulum that are confused with pancreatic abscesses. I've showed you adenopathy, particularly let's say from patients with colon cancer, but also patients with lymphoma and hepatoma, which can present as pancreatic masses being portal cable nodes. So we need to first determine whether something is indeed the pancreas or is it peripancreatic. Islet cell tumors, we've gotten much better picking up neuroendocrine tumors, but they're still missed, particularly incidental neuroendocrine tumors are typically in the one centimeter range. And sometimes we pick one up and we miss the second. There are other complications and sources of error. I've seen splenic artery aneurysms be confused with neuroendocrine tumors. I've seen accessory spleens be confused with neuroendocrine tumors. Sometimes you can't tell is that an accessory spleen on the pancreas or even in the pancreas by the tail, or is it a neuroendocrine tumor? So those are all challenges, and some of them we've spoken about in several of our other lectures, but I'm gonna cover some of the pitfalls today. Here's a nice example of a five millimeter enhancing lesion in the head of the pancreas, which was an incidental neuroendocrine tumor. Remember in the old days of CT, we had about a 30% accuracy for neuroendocrine tumors. Now it's about 95%. Now the issue is we pick up incidental neuroendocrine tumors and we don't know what to do with them. Most people feel that under a sonometer, leave alone. Some people say under two sonometers, leave alone if they're asymptomatic. But again, there's lots of argument in that. Now, one of the important things to recognize in the pancreas, as in all organs, is your accuracy is protocol dependent. So if I ask you, do you see a mass in the pancreas? You would say, no, there's no common duct dilatation. There's no pancreatic duct dilatation. I don't see any textural changes, but I'm drawing a circle and telling you, you're missing a three sonometer mass. Well, if instead of the 72nd venous phase image, you had the arterial at 30 seconds, look at that enhancing lesion you see in the head of the pancreas. You can see very nicely the vascularity of the lesion. There's no dilated duct. That's a classic neuroendocrine tumor, which is shown nicely abutting the GDA on the patient's arterial phase imaging, very nicely shown there. And you could see again arterial versus venous. This lesion becomes isodense. This is a wonderful example showing you how the accuracy of your interpretation is protocol-driven. If you are looking for a neuroendocrine tumor, arterial phase is critical, though sometimes lesions are best seen venous, so you need dual phase. If you only have venous phase, you will miss smaller, and this is not that small. I'm not talking about missing that five millimeter case. I'm talking about missing this case because the lesion is seen in arterial phase. So the CT scanning phase is so critical. I mentioned that before when we talked about that pseudopancreatic mass by the tail of the pancreas that was simply varices. In the ER, especially the full sequence of phases may not be gotten. Uh, Potential errors are numerous, including the best phase for lesion detection may not be acquired. I mentioned again with cirrhosis, You can mistake nodes for varices and varices for nodes. So protocols become very critical. And that's one of the challenges these days. How do you minimize dose yet maximize information? Often dual phase is what you need to pick up lesions that can easily be overlooked on single phase acquisition. Now here's a case when we talk about neuroendocrine, we say, well, the best phase is early phase. But this is a case where the patient's neuroendocrine tumor is best seen on the venous phase. It's not vascular, it's relatively hypovascular or minimally vascular. You can see it right here on some of the views, but you really see it more as textural change as I go through the various images. Look how subtle it is as you go from arterial to venous. We see it on the venous, but not the arterial. And we do see that some neuroendocrine tumors are late filling. So again, isodense, mildly hyperdense, no duct dilatation, no mass effect. Here it is on cinematic, even on cinematic arterial phase, very hard, even knowing where the lesion is, to see the lesion, but you can see subtle textural change. Remember, one of the things we talked about cinematic is textural change, and there it is circled on the coronal volume rendered views. You can see there is textural changes present, even the arterial phase. But of course, as you go from arterial, there's the lesion, to venous, look how much more obvious the lesion is shown. So again, reinforcing to you the importance and the challenges of multi-phase acquisition versus single-phase acquisition. Again, in designing protocols, know when you need two phases and when you can get by with a single phase. And again, this idea of texture mapping is just beautiful for showing you this patient's lesion, very nicely defined. Another example, patient with left nephrectomy, this patient's studies were read as negative, it's like a 10 to 12 year follow-up. But remember, we know that patients can get pancreatic mets more than 10 years after original resection. But you look at the pancreas here, it looks good. But if you looked at an arterial phase, look at this obvious mass you are missing, a 3 centimeter metastasis to the tail of pancreas, patient had a distal pancreatectomy, the patient's doing fine, but you could see that lesion is just not seen, and then it's seen very easily. Here's the 3D map of that, volume rendered. Look how bright we can make the lesion look. But again, you didn't see it otherwise. Another example, right nephrectomy. You look at the pancreas, it looks fine. People would always argue, well, patient has a single kidney, we don't want to give contrast. Single kidney, normal renal function give contrast. There's no increased risk to the patient. But in this case, the pancreas looks normal. What am I worried about? Well, when I give IV contrast, look at these numerous hypervascular metastases of the pancreas. The patient has multiple pancreatic meds from renal cell carcinoma. They're not distorting the outline. They kind of don't look different in density, but look how obvious you're missing two centimeters and one centimeter and three sonometer. You're missing all sorts of lesions that are obviously there, but with the wrong phase and the wrong protocol, you don't see them. And the same thing is, as you go from arterial to venous, You can subtly make out the largest lesion on Venus, but look how much more difficult it is to see the lesion. Again, one of the challenges for us is the right phase. Again, know when to use dual phase imaging and renal cell follow-up. For METS, you need arterial phase because it's not only pancreas, it's liver, it's muscle, it's nodes. The lesions are often gonna be hypervascular. Now we also talk about challenging cases in the pancreas we talk about pancreatitis versus uh, particularly autoimmune pancreatitis versus pancreatic neoplasms three errors autoimmune pancreatitis groove pancreatitis where it looks like a pancreatic head mass and concurrent pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer where the pancreatic cancer is often overlooked If we look at autoimmune pancreatitis that's something that's become more popular these days we see more cases it's a type of chronic pancreatitis that's characterized by an autoimmune inflammatory response with a lymphoplastic infiltration associated with fibrosis of the pancreas key findings are the absence of a history of prior pancreatitis elevated ig4 levels dramatic response to steroid therapy but at times it can be very difficult to distinguish from pancreatic cancer the age range, usually it's the same. More common in men, look at the symptoms of presentation. Join this abdominal pain, weight loss, and diabetes. That sounds like pancreatic cancer. Now sometimes what helps you is other organs are involved. The most common thing I see that can help me usually is renal involvement. You have areas of patchy, decreased attenuation in both kidneys. Sometimes you see things like sclerosing cholangitis or PBC, IBD. But to me, it's that renal involvement that's most helpful. And again, the confusion, we see this five or six times a year. Patients come to a multidisciplinary pancreatic conference. The biopsy was indeterminate, but the endoscopist was worried. Patient has history of weight loss, no history of pancreatitis. CA19 could be elevated. And it really looks mass-like on the CT scan. One helpful thing I'll tell you is often the appearance is different. You don't see a dilated duct. Now with autoimmune pancreatitis, you see diffuse glandular enlargement where the glands are lobular with a halo around it, and you talk about a featureless gland, homogeneous iso or hypoattenuating parenchyma with a non-dilated or diffusely narrowed pancreatic duct, and the halo around the gland is common. One of the things that also helps me uh, when there's global infiltration of the pancreas and the halo is much easier. But one of the tricky things sometimes is you only have focal autoimmune pancreatitis, and that can be trickier. You look at this case, wonderful example of a halo. There's no dilated duct, the pancreas looks large, but you really think it looks like inflammation. And after you've seen a few cases, this is classic autoimmune pancreatitis, that halo, that featureless gland, the lack of duct dilatation, be it common duct or pancreatic duct. And you can see the importance of diagnosis If you think about this being autoimmune pancreatitis, you get IG4 levels. Now, not everybody has an elevated IG4, but when you're highly suspicious, you treat with 40 milligrams of prednisone for two weeks, 40 milligrams a day. Here's the pancreas here enlarged. Here it is two weeks later, it's normal in size. So if you're uncertain, you don't want to end up doing a Whipple's or a total pancreatectomy for autoimmune pancreatitis, and that indeed happens. Another example here, the pancreas looks large, diffusely infiltrated. Maybe it's lymphoma, but what you see here is the patchy enhancement of the kidneys. That rings a bell. I'm thinking of autoimmune pancreatitis. This patient's IG4 levels were markedly elevated. Again, large gland, diffusely large, a little bit of halo, but no dilated duct, but those patchy kidneys really do help me along. Here's the coronal view. The kidneys at times look like infarcts or polynephritis, doesn't quite look like lymphominous infiltration, but when you see that, you gotta be thinking about multi-organ involvement by autoimmune disease and autoimmune pancreatitis. Now, an important thing also I just wanna bring up, and it's a little bit in terms of errors, and I mentioned how one of the things we've done is conferences and go over difficult cases and errors that we commonly make, often with, Uh, quality assurance you simply fill out a form once a month for errors that's just something you do to meet the rules if you really want to do things correctly you need to go over misdiagnoses. it can't always be the case where you just kind of look away or you don't address it by addressing errors we all make errors you don't call people out by name but by going over difficult cases or errors it really provides a true peer review and a peer improvement. And our monthly conference even gets CME credit, or bi-monthly conference gets CME credit. As opposed to standard peer review where the reviewing radiologist informs the primary reader that he or she believes the diagnosis was missed or an interpretation provided, the wrong information a CT case conference that includes correlation with other diagnostic imaging information provides accurate peer review based on gold standard from which everyone in the vision can learn to improve their skills when you tell someone they miss something they get defensive then they, they you feel uncomfortable they feel uncomfortable here I never call out names of people maybe people don't even remember they miss things you all know the problem we all miss things right so sometimes you look at a film and you see a mass and then you realize the prior film said it was negative. Then you think to yourself, what idiot missed this? Then you look and it was your name. So none of us are perfect. Now other things people talk about, should you use checklists for specific applications? Would checklists kind of like the airlines help decrease errors and especially miss CT findings? Residents often like checklists, fellows like checklists, attendings don't, but would it benefit attendings? Uh, Articles like this one by Kim, we advocate the use of checklists for different types of radiologic exams, depending on the body part image, to facilitate active search patterns, to decrease the incidence of this type of error. Some people like structured reporting because it says adrenal, kidney, pancreas, so you need to think about it, but I have seen people miss things anyway because it becomes almost automatic, adrenal negative, pancreas negative. So again, whatever you do, um, you need to be thinking about how it works. Now we've done checklists, we have a, two apps on the Apple Store. One is on pancreas and one is on adrenal masses, where you can work through a checklist going through demographics, clinical presentation, CT findings, is there a mass present? cystic, solid, and help you reach a very specific diagnosis by going through the different levels of the case. That can be very valuable. And you can see we have it in the teaching format, but you can imagine that in clinical practice. Because in many ways, each of us do this. When I see a pancreatic mass, I look and say, pancreatic mass, how old is the patient? Is the cystic, is it solid? How big is it? Is the pancreatic duct dilated? Is it calcified? Do I see distant mets in the liver? What do the vessels look like? This helps you go through all that process and helps you reach a very specific diagnosis. So I think that's exciting. The last thing on QA, I think AI is the ultimate QA device. AI is coming along fast and furious. We're working on pancreas for the past four years. We're about 95% accurate now. There are companies, whether it's the G, or the Siemens of the world, or specific AI companies like AI Doc and Zebra, coming along with FDA-approved applications from pneumothorax, to intracranial bleed, to pneumoperitoneum, to osteoporosis, And I think all of that is going to help us. You can see here, we use the computer to identify all the organs, and you can imagine the computer then analyzing each organ and looking for pathology. You can see how good the computer is. The annotation is a radiologist of the pancreas, and the prediction is the computer. So as I started, we all make mistakes you're never going to be 100%. But success does not consist in never making mistakes, but in never making the same one a second time. Now, if we never made it a second time, we'd be unbelievable, maybe not a third time or a 10th time. But I think this talk, hopefully, or these four talks, went through some of the pitfalls, some of the challenges, some of the things you need to think about, and we'll do more in the future. But there's nothing more important than learning from errors, whether it's your error or someone else's, knowing the pitfalls, knowing how to avoid them. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention and have a great day. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.